weakness, we fall in our areas of strength. Because in our areas of weakness is where we depend upon the Lord, and our areas of strength is where we think that we really don't need Him. Solomon's area of strength was his wisdom. And it may be that he thought he was a man who was too wise to be deceived. And he was very much deceived. His heart was led astray by all the wives that, that he accumulated. And so we, this morning in this passage of Scripture, it's about not believing every spirit but testing the spirits. And the caution being that we would not be deceived. I couldn't help but give a, a blonde joke in the course of teaching about Solomon. Um, picking on the blondes a little bit, but you just can't help it sometimes. And um, You heard about the blonde that, that was on the airplane, and, and she um, insisted that she be seated in first class. And she kept saying, I am blonde, and I am beautiful, and I am flying to Hollywood. And, and the attendants kept saying, well, ma'am, you, you don't have a first-class ticket. And she goes, you're not understanding me. I am blonde, and I am beautiful, and I am flying to Hollywood. And they could do nothing with her. And so finally they had to um, ask the pilot if he could do something. And the, they told the pilot what was happening. He says, oh, no, no problem. I, 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 can, I understand. And so he goes up to this woman, and he whispers something in her ear, and she, in a huff, just says, okay. And she goes and sits in coach. And so the flight attendants were amazed, and they said, well, what did you say? And he goes, well, I have a blonde wife, and, and I just explained to her that first class was not flying to Hollywood. <laughs> student told me a blonde joke after I told another one, and I thought, that's a good blonde joke. And she says, you know how to keep a blonde busy? You just write flip on both sides of a piece of paper. <laughs> Now, we're going to get into the text here in a minute, but um, <laughs> all of us are able to be deceived, not just blondes. Um, we have a, a bunch of little games, metal puzzles that we often keep on our coffee table in our living room, and when students come over, they like to pick up the puzzles and play with them. Well, amongst those, those um, puzzles, metal puzzles, we used to have a trick cigarette lighter. And, um, and the trick was to try to press it and not get it to shock you. Only it always shocks. And so I would always have the fun to tell the students, well, yeah, it shocked you the first time, but there's a way to do it that if you do it correctly, it won't shock you again. Most people would only do it once or twice. My father, who's a very smart man, he picked up the lighter and promptly got shocked. And I said, well, Dad, you're a smart guy. I know you can figure this out. And seven or eight times later, he was still getting shocked. So if he's still jumpy, that's why we are all capable of being deceived. A lot of times, deception is just simply because we, are, we don't have the knowledge that somebody else has. I'm not very knowledgeable about cars, so I always think it's funny when I hear somebody else was taken advantage of. Um, we had a, a student one year whose car was making noises, and she went to the staff member who knew most about mechanics and said, do you think it's the transmission? And the staff member said, no, it can't be. 
Well, why not? Says, because this car doesn't have a transmission. <laughs> Straight face. And so she took the car to mechanic there in comfort. And the mechanic checked it out and came and said, you've got transmission problems. And this girl says, can't be. And the mechanic goes, what do you mean it can't be? So well, this car doesn't have a transmission. <laughs> Having said all that, um, when it comes to spiritual matters, matters of spiritual truth, we should be the last people to be deceived. And the two reasons that John's going to give in this paragraph here are because we have the Spirit of God within us and we've been given the Word of God. That's really all we need, isn't it? If we have the Spirit of God who is Himself the Spirit of truth. Jesus said in John 15, I'm going to send you another helper, the Spirit of truth, and He will bear witness of me. And we have the Word of God in which there are no errors. Is 100% truth. Then we should not be easily led astray. We should not be gullible. But because we're also loving people, and with love comes an assumption of the best, love believes all things. Doesn't mean it believes everything, but it means it believes the best. We are, it seems, perhaps as Christians, more gullible sometimes than, than others, and certainly more gullible than we should be. And so John speaks to this and he says, test the spirits. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Well, what are the spirits he's talking about? And, and he doesn't even get very precise with that. He, he's just kind of a bit unspecific. And, he, and so we know spirit in the Bible can pertain to supernatural spirits like demons and angels. It can pertain to our own human spirit. And it can also uh, pertain to an attitude or a disposition that someone may have. And it might be John doesn't want to, to specify because he means all three. When it, that there's, and, and really, when he says test the spirits, I think what he's getting at is test what the force is behind the person speaking. Because we all speak from something. We have motivations. We, have, um, we, we, we can be influenced by the devil. We can be influenced by the Spirit of God. And he says, try to figure out, test where people are coming from. And the prophet, and he mentions that here, many false prophets have gone out. Well, a prophet is someone who is making a truth claim or making a, a proclamation that we are to take as being true. And he says, don't just believe it because a person stands up and says he's a prophet. There's also the story in 1 Kings where a young prophet goes to the, the altar in Bethel and cries out against it. And then he also makes the public proclamation that God has said to him, do not eat in this place, do not drink in this place, and go home by a different way. And he did that. Well, word came to an older prophet that of all that had just happened. And so he got on his donkey and rode and found the guy. And he says, are you the man of God who came up from Judah and cried out against the altar? And he says, I am. And he says, I want you to come home with me 
and, and fellowship with me. And the young prophet says, I can't do it. God said to me, don't eat in this place, don't drink in this place, and go home by a different way. And the older prophet said, but an angel appeared to me and said, you're to come home with me. And so the younger prophet said, well, that must be from God. An angel didn't appear to me. And so he went with the older prophet who had lied to him. He didn't test the spirits. And had he been more discerning, had he been less gullible, he would have just immediately recognized this cannot be true. No matter how believable this man may seem. He's older than me. His experience trumps mine. I've never seen an angel. But what he said contradicts what God has already said. And that should have been enough for him to have known it's wrong. I cannot listen to this man. And that's pretty tough when, this, when the person who's telling you something with authority behind it is older, wiser. There's no reason not to believe them. And yet, the words they're speaking are not consistent with what God has revealed. It has to be put aside. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. It's uh, interesting times <coughs> that we're living in. I think it was an old Chinese proverb that's, um, that used to say, may you be speaking to an enemy, they would say, may you be born, may your children be born in interesting times. Something along that line. And we are living in interesting times. Maybe every generation has. But I know, even in my tenure at His Hill, 30 years ago, if I were to ask a student, just the class in general, how many of you have been prophesied over? And if there were a group of 40 students, there might be one or two that said they had been prophesied over. Today, if I were to ask the same question, how many of you have been prophesied over? Anywhere from 25 to 50% of the students will raise their hands, sometimes more, and say that they have been prophesied over. So something's happening, and in one sense, it's not unusual because it was taking place in John's day, but we've gone a long time in church history where prophecy has not, and prophets have not had much of a profile. And now it's coming back on the scene again. And he says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. So John sees that Christians need to know that just because a person calls himself a prophet doesn't mean that he is genuinely a prophet. And what he's saying may in fact be false. This was also true in the Old Testament. Many Old Testament prophecies um, talked about the false prophets. Jeremiah 14, 14, the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Not much has changed. 2,500 years later, we're still seeing the same thing. So how do we test these prophets, these claim truth statements 
proclamations that are being made. What is the test? And so he begins and he says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Well, that's so fundamental and basic. I mean, how many of us in evangelical churches are ever going to hear somebody say, Jesus is not God in the flesh? I doubt we're going to hear that. But among us in the world are many people we know that do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the God-man, fully God, fully man. Mormons don't believe this. They believe that Jesus was a man, just like you and me, and that he became God, but he did not enter this world as God. And so they would say, as he was, we are, as he is, we shall be. Meaning he came as a man, and we are men, he is a God, and we will become gods. So they deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. They believe that he became the Christ, he became God after he left this life. Islam does not believe that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. Muslims don't believe that. Jews don't believe that. Jews deny Judaism, official Judaism denies that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. So we do have that around us to be careful of. And it doesn't present itself that clearly within the church. But it is a, there is a subtle way that the same denial is made. And this is what Paul speaks to throughout his letters especially. And that is when we deny the complete sufficiency of Jesus Christ for living this life, then we are denying that God became man and now through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and indwelling spirit, God can live in our humanity even as God was living in the humanity of Christ. It's not an easy way to express what I just said, but Jesus was God living as a man. And one of the lessons, basic lessons we're supposed to get from that is that God is sufficient for our humanity. Do we believe that? And if we don't, we will add to that. And in doing so, we will take away from the sufficiency of Christ. Another way that this statement can be translated, and probably this, this is the better way to understand it, is every spirit that confesses Jesus as Christ, having come in the flesh, is from God. I like that. I think that gets to the heart of it. And that speaks to where we as Christians are most likely to be deceived. I'm not probably going to be deceived when someone tells me that Jesus was not God in the flesh. That's not going to have much influence on me or on you. It is more likely that we as Christians would fail to confess that Jesus, as Christ, 
that Jesus is sufficient as the Christ, the Son of God, the, the one who is himself fully God, came in flesh so that we could live this life through his enabling. You just hold your finger here. We're going to be looking at some other passages this morning. And a lot of this is just going to be a um, reminder for you. But go over to Galatians chapter 1. The point that I'm trying to make here that I think John is saying to the church is that the deity of Christ in humanity cannot be overemphasized. His sufficiency, his adequacy in life, for life, for our humanity is what it means to confess that Jesus has come as Christ. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of God for a different gospel. They've been deceived. They've been led astray. Which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, let him be accursed. Now, how in what sense does the church need to continue to have the gospel preached? If you grew up Southern Baptist, you would say that it is to have a gospel invitation given at the end of every sermon. I'm not against that, but that is not what Paul is talking about. I grew up in Corpus, South Texas, and the time I was growing up, 90% of the kids that went to church either were Catholic or Baptist. And we were E-free. And, but I dated a girl who was Southern Baptist, and I would spend every Sunday night, every Wednesday night in her church, and no matter how many times I was there, every single church service ended with just as I am and a gospel, a, an invitation to come forward and receive Christ. So clearly, at least at that time, they took this as meaning that a gospel invitation needs to be presented every time you stand up. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. His understanding of gospel is the gospel is not the message of, of only how to be saved. But there's a message that also is once you've been saved, this is how you live. And they were being presented with a message that was adding to Christ and taking away from him. So if you go over to Galatians chapter 3, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed? You've been bewitched. Or in other words, you've been led astray. You've been deceived. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you get saved by works or did you get saved by faith? By faith. Okay. Then verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you got saved by the Spirit through faith, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You aren't saved one way, by the Spirit, through faith, and then only to be sanctified a different way. That's a different gospel. There's one gospel, one message, that we are saved by the grace of God, through faith, as, and, and it is the work of the Spirit of God 
who saves us. We do not save ourselves by our works. And Paul says, you're being deceived. Why would they do this? And every one of us struggle with, is there something more that I need? Is there something that I just don't know? Something that I'm missing out on? Something that I just, that if I just were to do this thing, all the pieces would fall into place for me. Because life is hard. And, all, and God doesn't always seem near. And sometimes he doesn't seem very real. And Paul just keeps saying, don't depart from Jesus. Keep coming back to him and his sufficiency. He was sufficient to save you, and he is sufficient to live this life. That's why Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. What more do we need? Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I don't live by works. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I live by faith. The same way I got saved, I got saved by faith. I live by faith in the Son of God. He is God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So we test the spirits by saying, where is this leading me? Is this leading me toward dependence upon Christ, this teaching? Or is it leading me toward doing something so that all the pieces start to fall together? Why is it there's nothing in the Bible that says how much we're supposed to read our Bibles? Why is it there's nothing in the Bible that says how often the church is supposed to assemble together? We assume it's once a week. But it doesn't say it has to be once a week. Why is there nothing in the Bible that says how often we're supposed to memorize Scripture or share our faith? It's silent. It's because the Christian life is not lived by the things that we do. It is lived by faith in Jesus Christ. And it is easy to be led astray because of authoritative pronouncements and people who seem to have their acts together who are saying, if you will just do this, then this is how your life will have meaning. So it's why it's so dangerous for us when we, we have very real experiences with God, and we thank God for those times. But God never intended that our personal experiences with God become a mandate for how other people are to live out their relationship with God. That takes people away from God. And they have to become disciples of our experience rather than followers of Jesus. He says back in 1 John chapter 4, again verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The spirit that exalts Jesus alone and adds nothing to him. Nothing. That is the Spirit from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. You notice he doesn't say every spirit that denies Jesus? 
Because sometimes, many times, people will not just come out and say, don't trust Jesus. But the message that you're getting is, Jesus is not enough. There's something besides Jesus. And so the effect is the same. They're not openly denying Jesus, but neither are they confessing Jesus and his word are sufficient. There is nothing more we need. Listen to what's being said. Listen to what is not being said. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, these Antichrist spirits, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We do not need to be led astray, because we have the Spirit of God, and God himself in us is greater than the devil who is in the world. Revelation 12, 9 says that the Satan is the deceiver of the world. We should not be deceived. And then speaking about the world, verse 5, they are from the world. Not us. The unbeliever, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak these false prophets. Even they, and they, sometimes false prophets can be Christians, but they are of the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. In what sense? You are from God. They are from the world. They speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. The world's message. Think about the different messages the world has for us. Of what goodness is. Of what spirituality is. Of what love looks like. I mean, you can basically take any message the world is giving to us. And in some way, it's a perversion of the truth. The world's definition of love doesn't come close to what Scripture says. It never means speaking the truth to somebody because everybody has their own truth. Their definition of love is you accept everybody just as they are and you never speak the truth to them. The world would say that you cannot be saved and be right standing with God simply by placing your trust in Jesus. The world would tell us that nothing more is nothing more is important to you and your truth and pleasing to God than when you are happy, fulfilled, and all of your desires are being met. No matter what those desires are. The world says those desires are right and they are God given. And God intends for you to be fulfilled and happy with all of your desires. He would never have you be undenied unfulfilled. The world would tell us that bigger is always better and that you can judge the success of a nation or a people or an individual or a church by whether it's constantly growing numerically and prospering financially. The world would tell us that that you if you do acknowledge sin, that you could never be sorry enough for it. That you can never truly be free of guilt and condemnation. There's always something that you need to do. 
in order to absolve yourself of guilt. These are lies. There are so many, all the world does is hand out lies. We need to be careful what we're listening to. And there are a lot of lies even within the church. Christians who are believing lies and propagating lies. Jesus is not exalted. And the message is really no different than the message of the world. We try to grow ministries using the same business principles of a secular business. And don't realize how we've bought into the world. It is deception. We are from God. Verse 6. He who knows God listens to us. Now the we, undoubtedly here, is John, as he's been doing throughout this epistle, is in reference to the apostles. <coughs> and so to listen to the apostles is to listen to God. He's not saying to listen to any pastor, any preacher, is to listen to God. Should be that way, because we ought to speak as from God. But he's not saying that. But he's saying we, the apostles, are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who does not, is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now he's given us the second test. How do we test the spirits? What are the spirits confessing concerning Jesus? And is that spirit behind what that person is saying truly exalting Christ alone? There is nothing you need other than Jesus. That's the first test. And the second test is, what happens to God's word? What is the place of God's word when I'm listening and taking to its logical conclusion what this person is teaching? Do I need to read the authors, the books of the person preaching, or is he directing me back to Scripture? How do I live the life he wants me to live? We've got a guest speaker who's coming soon, and I so much appreciate it. He's written a book, and he passes it out to all the students, and he says that if you are taking time to read my book rather than the Bible, you have your priorities wrong. Don't read my book before you've spent your time in God's Word. Good for him. The teacher that is not taking us back to Scripture, I tell you, it concerns me, even within torchbearers, as I see sometimes it feels like a, 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 a drift, but more and more people that are not able to handle God's Word. And when they're teaching, they're not opening up the book. That should alarm us. That is how it starts. And so we begin talking, sharing our thoughts, sharing our experiences, and my thoughts and experiences mean nothing. God's Word is our authority. And so we, we, we should want to be in a church where God's Word is opened as the authority. This is what we should be doing ourselves. If I'm drifting away from God's Word, I am, I am moving into deception. I have to come back to God's Word. This is how the spirits are going to be tested. If you'll flip over to me to, with me to 2 Peter and this whole epistle here, here is really about testing false prophets and false teachers, but especially chapter 2 and into chapter 3. And let me just, just 
look at, at his conclusion in chapter 3, verse 1. This I know, this, it, this is now, beloved, the letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord, that's the Gospels, what Jesus has said, and spoken by your apostles, that's the epistles. So in that verse, he covers all of the Bible. What the Old Testament prophets said, what Jesus said, and what the apostles say. He says, I'm just reminding you. You want to test the spirits? You want to know what the, the distinction between a false prophet and a true prophet, a false teacher and a, and, a, and a true teacher? Don't deviate from God's word. By these two things, there is no reason for a Christian to ever be, de be deceived when it comes to spiritual teaching. Truth, spiritual truth. We ought to have better understanding and insight than anyone because we have the Spirit of God and we have the Word of God. Looking earlier in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, there's an emphasis that he's making. There's something, one of the first, the characteristic, there's three characteristics I want to highlight here. The first one we've just looked at, the chief characteristic of one of the false, of a false prophet who is being motivated by an untrue, lying, deceiving spirit, is that the, the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ is going to be minimized. And it is minimized sometimes simply by legalism, adding performance to faith. There is something I have to do, and trusting Jesus is not enough. That's the first way. Peter emphasizes a second characteristic of the false prophet or the false teacher. Chapter 2, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. So how do you know a heresy? By, again, the word of God. Even denying the master. Denying what? That he is sufficient, that he is able, that he is the master who bought them, and, and they're bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many will follow, and this is the second clue, their sensuality. A false prophets and false teaching will often focus on sensuality. And again, the idea that God just wants you to be fulfilled and not in any way to be denied. Sensuality. And many will follow their sensuality because of them. The way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. In verse 7, And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, and then he continues with this, <coughs> and he come down to verse 12, but these like unreasoning animals, just sensual creatures, born as creatures of instinct, to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. 
suffering wrong as their wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery and that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. Then coming down to verse 18, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice you by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. And that is clearly the emphasis here is one of the things, the teaching of the false teacher, the false prophet, will lead you to put all the focus on yourself, your personal fulfillment, and even where you no longer define sin as God defines it. We are living in that world today. And it is certainly characterizing the church. It's easy to pick on countries that seem to have moved further away than we think we have. And, um, and, I've, and, and having students from other countries, you hear all kinds of things that's going on in other countries. We're not any better. And again, the same tendency that exists in any other country around the world to somehow just subtly begin telling people that the Christian life is about being happy and being fulfilled in all of your desires, no matter what they are, is a lie. It is false teaching. It is false prophecy. It is nothing to do with what Scripture says. It is sensuality that is being advanced in place of spirituality. A third characteristic of the false teacher Jesus mentions in Matthew. If you look at Matthew chapter 24... He says concerning the great tribulation, Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. And then verse 24, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. Third characteristic of the false teacher, false prophet. The first is he denies or limits the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for living this life. The second is there will be a subtle emphasis on sensuality rather than true spirituality. And third, an emphasis on signs and wonders, the sensational, the spectacular, rather again than just simple, humble faith in Jesus. If we never see a miracle, it will not diminish our walk with Christ. You can know Christ in truth and in reality and spend your entire 80, 90 years on this planet and never see a miracle because we know the miracle of our own souls being redeemed and living in a personal relationship with the living God. What greater miracle can there be than that? But we're living in a time when signs and wonders are constantly being emphasized. And Jesus says, I've told you in advance, many are going to be deceived by this. Sensationalism, sensuality, and a minimization 
of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. These are indicators of the false prophet and false teaching. And people will listen to it all. You'll sell a lot of books. I had somebody that texted me this week and said, I'm done. I'm so discouraged. I'm just, I'm out of here. And it was partly in jest. And, he, and, and, and part of the reason that he was texting me was because of financial problems. And I texted him back and said, listen, man, don't worry. Just, just write a book about, you know, some miracle that happened in your life. And you'll become rich. You know, tell everybody about how they can do X, Y, and Z, and, and you know, and, and all the gold is going to fall down out of heaven. And, um, and, man, you'll be rich and famous. And, you know, and it encouraged him. He laughed a little bit because it's true, isn't it? Even within the evangelical church, I know people personally who are giving basically everything they have to a teaching that is focusing on signs and wonders, a prosperity theology, which has as its core sensualism, and just saying, if you do this and follow this, then God's going to bless you beyond anything you can imagine. Maybe. But is that really the message of the gospel? It is a departure from a pure and simple devotion to Jesus. And it will not sustain us in times of great trial. It's being peddled all over this world. Had a friend in Uganda that told me that, there were, that there, these preachers, signs and wonders preachers, were coming to Uganda, staying in the, in the top resorts in the nation, and saying to some of, the most peop- some of the most poor people in the world, God wants you to have a refrigerator in your home. They don't even have electricity in their homes. And they said, if you will just give American dollars to us, God will put that refrigerator in your house. I'm telling you. Amazing. Down in Costa Rica, had a friend there that says they come to Costa Rica and they'll stand on a platform and they'll, and they'll, and they'll wave American dollars in their hands and say, this is what God wants you to have. And all you have to do is give to me and God will make you stinking rich. Appealing to the sensual nature of each of us. Signs and wonders, sensationalism, sensuality, and a subtle denial of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. You hear the message in that. It's not enough to have Jesus. There's something more that God wants you to have. I'm convinced that one of the things that is the greatest proof of God's presence in this world is not among the wealthiest. It's among the poorest. People who have nothing but the joy of Jesus is just flowing out of their lives. They may be crippled. They may be ill. And yet you see this person and you see the living Christ through their weakness and their need. That's the gospel. Jesus is enough. And John's saying, again, very simply, if this teaching's taking you away from the sufficiency of Jesus and is somehow taking you away from the authority of God's word, putting experience over God's word, beware. Dear missionary lady, one of the finest people I feel like I've ever met, and in one of her books, 
I believe it was her autobiography. She talked about how in one church service that she was in, and they were fervently seeking the Lord in prayer. And it just seemed that the Spirit of God invaded that room like none of them had ever known before. And in the course of that spirit invasion, she said, the room got filled with light and, and, the, and a wind showed up and even the, the, the curtains hanging from the wall stood straight out into the room. And she says, and there was no wind outside. The wind was only inside. And they believe that that was a, a replica of Acts chapter 2 where it says that they all spoke in tongues, and tongues as of fire appeared on each person's head. And there, there, was, and there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And they felt that what happened to them in Africa was a replica of that. The problem is that's not what happened in Acts chapter 2. There was no fire in that room. There was something that looked like fire. And there was no wind in that room. There was a sound as of a wind. And the spirit that did that was taking advantage of their ignorance. If they had just read their Bibles carefully, I would have thought they would have gotten down on their knees and say, Lord, help us, because this is not of you. I'll finish with a quote that I've quoted before from A.W. Tozer. Some of my friends, good-humoredly, and some a little bit severely, have called me a mystic. Well, I'd like to say this about any mysticism I may suppose to have, because A.W. Tozer believed in a personal, living relationship with Jesus. He was not just an academic. He believed that Christ can be known personally. So he got criticized as being a mystic by some. Well, I'd like to say this about any mysticism I may suppose to have. If an archangel from heaven were to come to me and were to start giving me, telling me, teaching me, and giving me instruction, I'd ask him for the text. I'd say, where is that in the Bible? I want to know. And I would insist that it was according to the scriptures, because I do not believe in any extra-scriptural teachings, nor any anti-scriptural teachings, or any sub-scriptural teachings I think we ought to put the emphasis where God puts it and continue to put it there and to expound the scriptures and to stay by the scriptures. I would not, no matter if I saw a light above the light of the sun, I'd keep my mouth shut about it till I checked with Daniel and Revelation and the rest of the scriptures to see if it had any basis in truth. And if it didn't, I'd think I'd just eaten something I shouldn't have. And I wouldn't say anything about it because I don't believe in anything that is unscriptural or, it, or that is anti-scripture. Amen. I'll close this in prayer. Lord, I th- without you we are just lost sheep, easily led astray, easily deceived. You are our good shepherd. We didn't become smart because we received Christ, though it was the smartest thing we could have done. We are no less dependent now than we were before you were 
in us as our very life. But you are our shepherd, and that means we need to be led. And we do not have the capacity within ourselves as sheep for self-direction. I pray, God, that we would always be aware that we are, well, as long as we are in this body, be able to be led astray. And if we think that we are beyond being deceived, we've already been deceived. We need you. We thank you that you in us, you are greater than the one who is in this world. You indwell us to lead us into all that is true. And we thank you for your word. I pray we never go beyond it and that we stand on it as our sole authority in testing all that is right and good and true. We thank you, Father, for all that you've given us in Christ, that we lack nothing. And I do pray that we would walk wisely, innocently, and yet wisely in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.